some of us have had a variety of experiences, and some of them not so great. I have had some hunting experiences that are not so great. I shared with you a few years back that I took one of my boys hunting, and when I took him, it was the first time that he had ever gone out into the woods with us. I didn't know all the rules and whether he should be there or not, but he was with me in the tree stand. And as we were sitting up in the tree stand, I had two buckets there, and he was sitting there. We got out there early in the morning, and it was cold, and he was all excited about being up in the tree stand. Within five minutes after we were there, he was saying, Dad, it's cold. Dad, it's cold. Can I go back in? Can I go in? It's like, hey, bud, you want to go back into the cabin. It's way down the hill. I'm not taking you. And he says, well, Dad, can you warm me up? So he sat on the buckets, and I pulled him towards me, and he was sitting here with his legs here, and I was rubbing his back just to keep him warm so that he was, you know, wouldn't freeze. And we did this for a while. He'd get up, and he would be hungry. He'd be moving around. If, there, if we were going to see a deer, it was going to be impossible. He was moving so much, making so much noise. And one time, a little bit later, he says, Dad, I'm really tired. I said, okay, put your shoulder right here. Just be quiet. You know, you watch that way if you see a deer say something. So he had his head on my shoulder. He's looking that way. And all of a sudden, as quiet as it could be, there in the woods, nothing moving. I'm looking this way. He's looking that way. And he yells, Dad, there's a deer! Everybody in Potter County heard his warning. It was so loud. And so, you know, my ear, I was deaf. I couldn't, you know, I was shocked. And he says, over there, Dad, over there. And he turned me on the bucket. And sure enough, there was a deer. It was running as fast as it could, you know, obviously. So then I, he says, Dad, shoot. And he hits me, you know, and I almost fell out. So I aim. He says, Dad, shoot. So it, it was no use. I just, boom, shot up in the air. We needed a little bit of instruction time to say, okay, hey, now listen, when you're out here hunting, you know, you can be enthusiastic, but you have to be quieter. He asked me, what's quiet? No, I, seriously. You know, he's saying, you know, what do I do? And I was, okay, we explained everything. And we had a successful hunt later that day when he did it the right way. But the point was, he was so excited, it got beyond his control. Do you ever have those moments where something is so exciting, you just, ah, We've had some of those this past week. Some of the kids were so excited that we drew their name and they got to come up here. You know, there's some kids were so excited over different things that happened during the course of this week. It was just, it was a fantastic time. Can I share something with you from the scriptures? Paul was excited. Paul says that the thing that thrilled him the most was that of winning people to Jesus Christ. He was so thrilled about it. He was so excited about it. He said that this was his life's major desire. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, he describes what he feels about his kinsmen, his relatives, that he wants to see them get saved. And he reveals for us a little bit about himself, his enthusiasm, his excitement, and how it impacted him. In fact, if you were to study this whole entire section, 9, 10, 11, the whole chapter in the midst of talking about people needing to be born again, people who are saved, how God is just and changing them. Chapter 8 is all about sanctification and security. Then in chapters 9, 10, 11, he's talking about God's sovereignty and dealing with the Jews. Paul is saying, I am concerned about the Jews. I am really wanting them you know, to know Jesus Christ. In fact, let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. What we find is Paul says, I have a burden for the Jews. He's going to mention it in chapter 9, but he, again, he mentions it in chapter 10 again, where he says, I desire that they be saved. According to chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what we find about Paul's burden, his desire for the Jews to get saved. It is real. It is absolutely real. He says these words. He says, I say the truth in Christ. 
I do not lie. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Did you catch something? He says, I am not lying. He is being led by the Spirit of God to write these verses. God is directing him and he is speaking and God as his witness says, he is not lying. He really, really, really wants his fellow Jews to get saved. In fact, he does something that's very Jewish. He calls three witnesses to say, these people... These witnesses, these whatever, they can testify that I am telling you the truth. My own conscience, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit can avow before you that I really want these people to be saved. It isn't just something that he should say as a preacher. It isn't something that he should say because he's an older fella. It isn't something he should say because he's an apostle. He says, from my heart, I mean this. I really, really want my relatives to get saved. In fact, his burden is not only real, it is intense. Look at the verbs. Look at the words he is using as he describes it. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience, also bearing me witness, I have great heaviness. Literally, the idea is this. I feel a burden, a heart attack. I feel pressure on my chest. That this is so important. Some of you would say, this is like that burden at times. This is like that situation where a new job, a test, something is happening and it is really weighing heavy on my heart. Paul says, this is weighing so heavy on my heart that my relatives get saved. He says, this great heaviness, this big burden that I have. He says, I have sorrow. It's the funeral sorrow. It's not just like I'm sad that, you know, the pizza is cold. It's not like I'm sad that, you know, I can't get to see the movie tonight. He says, I have funeral sorrow. I am grieving in my heart that my relatives may not be born again. And that if they die, they would end up in hell. And it bothers me so very, very much that it is paining me at moments. He goes on, he says, It is bothering so much, it is so intense, I have great heaviness, I have continual sorrow. Verse 3, I wish that myself were anathema from Christ. I would rather go to hell so my relatives could get born again. I would be accursed from Christ. I would be willing to exchange places because I am so concerned that they get born again. Paul is willing to exchange places with his relatives in hell. There are some Christians who are not willing to take out a tract to see their friends get saved. They are not willing to share an email message. They are not willing to invite a co-worker to hear preaching so that they could possibly get saved. But Paul is so genuine that Paul says, I would rather go to hell than to see my relatives go to hell. If I could change places with them, that's how burdened I'm at, I'm, I am for my lost loved ones. I really, truly want to see them get born again. You know, there was a time that I remember an occasion where I got really burdened for somebody else. It happened to be my oldest son. When he was just two or so, he had to have some x-rays done. And in the hospital, they do x-rays with little kids that age, kind of weird. Well, Deb was, Deb was pregnant with uh, our second child, so she couldn't go into the x-ray room. So they said, why don't you go in? But you have to hold him perfectly still. So I was trying to hold Pastor Tony perfectly still. Okay, that doesn't work. When he was two, it didn't work. And so he kept on fidgeting. They said, you know, Mr. Burgraff, that doesn't doesn't work. We're going to put him in the in the child carrier thing, the strap down thing. Now they have modernized it. It's not as bad as it was in that time. It looks more like this, and a child in it looks like this. Okay, 
And so they put him in this thing. They took him from us. They said, you have to step out. And we heard this crying. Daddy, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, mommy. And Deb was outside that door bawling and bawling. She says, can't we do something? Can't we do something? I could barely hear her because I was crying. Can't you do something? Can't you do something? So we're there upset, crying. And they, the nurse stepped out. And when she stepped out, I got to look in to see. Tony strapped like this, but on a, on a wooden thing. I was so burdened, I was so moved, it was like, i got to go in there and rescue my son. He can't, what are they doing to him? And they were actually doing something good to him, right? They were doing something helpful, but it bothered me. It bothered me that he was strapped down. Does it bother you that your relatives and co-workers are strapped down into sin? That they are saying, I can't break free of this bondage of addiction. I can't break free of this, of this you know, struggle with, with desire, with, with sin, with anger. They need you to share the truth with them. They need you. Do you have a burden to do something? Paul says, I was so burdened for them. that I, He says, I, I had to do something, so what he does... He describes this burden. He says, I, you know, I'm going to do something because I, I can't get rid of the burden. The burden was not only real, it was not only intense, it was constant. The verbs. Mark this down as you look at this verse. It says, I have, it's the present tense. I keep on having this heaviness. It doesn't go away. It's like this upset stomach. It's like this indigestion. It's like this heartburn that just will not go away. It, the Alka-Seltzer doesn't take it away. The, you know, the Sprite doesn't take it away. The 7-Up doesn't take it away. He says, I'm so burdened for the lost. It doesn't just happen. Once in a great while, I am burdened for my coworkers, my neighbors, my relatives. And it stays with me. And it goes with me. And it just, just doesn't come up at teen camp time. It just doesn't come up during VBS time. It just doesn't come up when I'm young. I have it, and he's been saved some 25 years when he writes this message. And he is still burdened for him. And he makes the comment, I have had, and I continue to have. It's a perfect verb. I was married, and I continue to be married, is the, is the idea. I was married, and I continue that, is that same perfect idea. I had this sorrow. I continue having sorrow after 25, 30 years. I am burdened for the lost. Can you say you are still burdened for the lost? Can you say, those of you who have been saved... Five years, ten years, fifteen years, you are burdened for the lost, that it is constant in your heart, that you really want to see them get born again. Paul was so burdened, it moved him to action. We, he said, this is something they need. Do you ever hear about Robert Cheeseboro? He's the inventor of Vaseline in the 18, late 1860s. He found he was an engineer for an oil company, and as a byproduct of the oil that was found in uh, Western PA, he began to work with it, and he founded Vaseline. He was convinced Vaseline was a medicinal product, that it could be used. But he couldn't convince other people, so he went on the road, and he, and he tried to market it by doing two things. One, he would give small samples away. Number two, whenever you do demonstrations, he would take acid, or he would take lighting, some lighter, and he would burn himself. And then he would use the Vaseline to rub over to show how the Vaseline would help take care of the pain. And then, as well, it would, he would show scars, how it helped with his scars in the past. He put it on He used his own body as a, as a means of advertising something he was convinced about. He was absolutely certain this was so important to have, I am willing to even do a little bit of harm to myself because I am convinced this is a product you could use. The gospel is a product others can use. 
others can, can, can have if you share it with him. You and I need to be so convinced that we will put ourselves into a place of discomfort if need be to share that gospel. That we will do what we need to do because we are convinced this is what the world needs. They need Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, you know, politics are something I really enjoy following, okay, because it's a personal desire, but I need to stay away from it, can, can consume. The world doesn't need Hillary or Donald Trump, okay? They need Jesus Christ, okay? The world doesn't need America. The world does not need America to take care of its woes. The world needs Jesus Christ. The world needs to hear, and Americans need to hear, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We can be convinced about it. We can be certain about it. But what good does it do if we don't have a burden that moves us to do something about it? See, Paul was so burdened for the lost. And the reason is what he explains in chapter 10. A passage you are so familiar with, but I fear that we get so familiar we, we ignore the impact of it. Watch what he says. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. And then he goes on and says, here's why I pray this way. He says, for this reason, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. What he is going to tell us, starting with verse 1, is this. They don't realize they need to get saved. I want them to get saved because they don't even realize they need it. They don't understand they need to be born again. They need a Savior. They're like the Jews of old. Those Jews of old that, that he says, they, they, they were convinced the Gentiles were bad. They were convinced the maimed, the poor, the lowly were bad because, according to Jewish teaching, the only people that had bad things happen to them were those who were being punished for sin. So, as a result, they, they, a lot of these Jews rejected the gospel. Why? They're not bad enough to go to hell. They're not bad enough that they, need, that they have problems. But the Samaritans, they're bad. The tax collectors, they're bad. Those who work as publicans, they're bad. Those who are poor, they're really bad, but not us. And he says, I am burdened for them. They don't even realize that they need salvation. He's written a whole, th whole four chapters about that beginning of the book, how people are lost, that the wages of sin is what? Death, that he says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Then in verse 2, he says there's another reason why I'm so burdened for them. They talk about God, they worship God, but they don't really know God. They're very zealous about God. He says they have this zeal, they serve. And by the way, Paul knows what he's talking about. He did this. Paul, before he got born again, he was a, he was a teacher. He was a leader in the Jewish religion. He even led people in their service for God at synagogues. He even got involved in the teaching of the college at the college there in possibly Antioch or Jerusalem. He as well got so zealous serving God that he did persecution against other peoples and led groups even in persecution against the Christians. And now he says, I look back at that. I was zealous for God, but I didn't have knowledge of God. The world back then and the world today is filled with people who have knowledge of God or who have zeal for God, but not knowledge. There are preachers, there are teachers. There are religious folk who are writing books, who have TV programs, who have started religious systems, that they talk about God, but they don't know the full truth. They don't even talk about being born again. They don't talk about the idea that if you're not saved, you end up in hell. They don't talk about the idea that once saved, you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and you are saved forever. They don't tell the full truth. They don't know the full truth. And he says that re leads to many others not knowing. We got a lot of people in America. We got a lot of people in our country who know about God.
God, who are zealous about God, but they don't know him. They need to be told about him. And Paul says, I am so burdened for them. Because these people have knowledge, uh, they have zeal, but they don't have real knowledge. He goes on in chapter 10, verse 4. He says, you know what really bothers me? He says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they go about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted unto God. That should be verse four, uh, 3 up here instead of verse 4. They are trusting in their own goodness instead of the goodness of that God provides. There are a lot of people who are doing this. They are not submitting. The word literally means to rebel against the righteousness of God. I did that. When I got, before I got saved, I did the same thing that some of you did. I went and got baptized as an, as an infant. I didn't do what my parents did. I went and got confirmed. I went and got catechized. I went through all the different rituals. I went to the confession. I went to do the penance. I went to the church on a regular basis. Why? Because I thought if I did enough good things, I will be able to earn heaven. And I thought if I, if I follow the certain rules of the church, that's going to get me to heaven. He says that's what the Jews were doing. They were going about to establish their own righteousness, their own goodness, so that they thought one day, standing before God, they would say, God, let me into heaven because I have all these good works, instead of trusting in the righteousness, the goodness that God and God alone can provide. That's why when Jesus was here, he was saying, God and God alone is good. There is no man who is righteous before God. We are all sinners. He told them they needed to repent. They needed to call upon Him as Savior. He would then give them some of His goodness to cover them in a robe like they would at a marriage celebration. In the Jewish culture, when they got married, the groom was dressed up better than the, the bride. And during the ceremony, he would take off his robe and put it over the, the bride's shoulders. So when everybody looked at her after the ceremony, they would see she was covered by his robes. She belonged to him in the same way. Isaiah says that the Messiah would cover us with his robe of righteousness. Why do we need that? Because when God looks at us, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. God sees my lying. God sees my cheating. God sees my anger. God sees the gossip. God sees the lust. God sees the upsetness. God sees you know, the disobedience to parents. And he says we need to have that all covered. You and I cannot cover it by, by our good works. The Jews tried to. They, they didn't realize that, they, that their good works were not good enough. They needed God. In fact, he goes on. He says they may, are making a huge mistake. According to the following verses, they were misinterpreting their own Bible. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. And then he goes on for several verses and describes what the law was saying. Let me summarize it for your sake here and give you an idea. It is easy to misinterpret the Bible. We had one youngster come to Bible school this week that asked a fabulous question, a really good question. I can understand why they would be confused. They go to a church that doesn't explain any kind of Bible, even if they go to church. But mom and dad have not explained anything. So our workers were doing during the Bible time explaining things. And as Mrs. Howard was dealing with the child and showing the child the verses, the child had a question, not only about the verse, but the reference. Why does John, why does it say John 3.16? Is that because John wrote it at 16 minutes after 3 in the afternoon? You can understand why a child would think that. Take away the John. Okay. They didn't know. They didn't, he did, the child did not know. Did not understand. 
The Jews were of that same mindset. They thought they knew the Bible, but they were misinterpreting the Bible. They were going about, and they refused to see that the Bible, the Old Testament, indicated that Jesus was the end of the law. What that word telos means is this, that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of, of everything that was predicted in the Bible. That he was the completion of all the sacrifices. That everything pictured. The tabernacle, the priest. That Jesus was the in-life fulfillment of everything pictured. That could be what he means by the end of the law. Or it could be this. The telos, the finishing of it. The, the end line that when Jesus died, no more law. No more sacrifices. No more going to the high priest. No more having to go to the temple. You go to God through Jesus Christ. Either way, we have the same thing. The Jews did not understand Jesus was the end of the law. They couldn't even see it in their own scriptures. As well, they didn't even realize that if they agreed by contract to live according to the law, to make themselves good enough to get into heaven, they would have to live by every single one of the laws, 100% of the time. In attitude and in action, who could keep 100% of the law 100% of the time? Who could do that? No one. No man could. No man. You just take the Ten Commandments. Take the Ten Commandments. How many of us in this room have violated the Ten Commandments at some point, at least one of them, at some time in our life? All of us. We have used the name of the Lord in vain. We have at times not given, given Him the worship that is due Him. We have, all of us, have at some time disobeyed our parents. Have, have any of us ever thought ill of another person? Have any of us ever had a thought that we shouldn't have had about possessing something somebody else had? Have we ever had any lustful thoughts physically? We go through that law and we have all violated. That's just 10 of the 639 laws. Nobody could keep them. And the Jews were misinterpreting the idea that if I do a few, I'll be good enough. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. You need Christ. And because of your, your ignorance, you're in big trouble. They failed to see, according to verse 6 and 7, that the righteousness that they needed was by God alone. They failed to see that all God required was faith. Faith, simple faith, according to verse 8 and 9, where he goes on and he says, The word is not even near your mouth, the word of faith which we preach, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's the work of Christ, faith in what he has done. He says, that's what you need. They didn't understand. He goes on in verse 12 and he says, listen, I have a burden for them because they need someone. Someone to tell them, to explain it to them. They cannot get it on their own. So he goes on and he says, for there's no difference for the same Lord whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 14 is where I want to be. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? He says they need somebody to tell them and I'm burdened. I'm burdened. I want them to hear. And one day they're going to be held without excuse. They're going to be judged by God because they did not respond. He says, that bothers me. That bothers me that there are so many of my relatives that are misunderstanding the word of God. Misunderstanding their religious system. Putting their faith in their own good works, their own church. He says, that bothers me. By the way, we have that today. We have a lot of people in the realm of Christianity who are trusting in their baptism, their church, their parents' good deeds, their family. They are trusting in all kinds of things, but not Jesus Christ and Him alone. They need to understand it is by faith that they get born again. And he says, I've got to have somebody to tell them. 
Somebody's got to be warning them. Somebody's got to be giving them the news, and, that's, and I'm burdened. So he's so burdened that he says, i got to do something. Do you remember years ago, some of you weren't here, but years ago we had an evangelist in by the name of Neil Cadwell. He told the story of a church in the Midwest that this church had at the front of their auditorium this verse mounted on the front of the church that came in. This church was a vibrant church. It was seeing people one to Christ. It was winning people. It was getting young men to be interested in sharing the gospel and going out to preach the word of the Lord. One of those young men who responded as a teenager got saved. He went off to Bible college. He went into seminary. He went into the pastorate and he was preaching the word of God for several years. He ended up coming to that hometown, visiting at one time, and as he passed through, he thought, I'm going to look up that church, that church that he remembered, and he could picture it so well, the front of the auditorium didn't look like this, but the front of the auditorium had its normal front, and across the top where there is no vision, the people perish, just that, that zeal, that, that encouragement week after week that people would say, we've got to get out the word of God. He, so he drove where he thought that church was. Things had built up differently. It's been a lot of years since he's been by. His family hasn't been there for a long time, so he's not been through the region. And he goes to where he thinks those crossroads were in that country area, and he didn't find the church. Uh, it might be because the crops are so high. He didn't find the church. He came to a crossroads and said, but I really think it's in this area, kind of back into that group of trees right there. He got out of the car and he walked over there, and sure enough, weeds were growing up, but there was a driveway there at one time. He went back there, and sure enough, there was a building in that cluster of trees. But the building was now closed. The building had been boarded up, obviously no activity. His thought was, well, maybe the church has moved. I don't know. You know but I've not heard about it anything. And you know, neighbors that I asked, they hadn't even heard about this thing. So he got inside. Boy, he had, a, had an opening, crawled inside just to see. He walked into the auditorium. And then, and then he saw what happened to that church and why it was shut after all these years. That sign across the front was missing one letter that had fallen off. Instead of reading, where there is no vision, the people perish, the W had fallen off. Here there is no vision, the people perish. May that never be said of Faith Baptist Church, but it could be. It could be when people in our church... I get to the point where Sunday morning services is all I need to do to serve Jesus Christ. I don't need to share the Word of God ever. I don't need to be involved in getting the Word of God out. I'm too busy with my life. People, somebody else is going to have to share the gospel with them. Somebody else is going to have to. Now, I hope the other Christians do a good job because I'm busy. I've got retirement. I've got college. I've got high school. I've got sports. Your heart says, here there is no vision. The people perish. That will spread like a disease in your soul and in the soul of your friends. And it will destroy a zeal for Christ and others around you will follow suit. You and I need to make sure we maintain a burden. How do we do that? We have that burden. It should lead to number two. It should lead to this. A begging for the lost. You and I should get on our knees and be praying, Oh God, if we have a genuine burden, Oh God, help us to do something about it. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, these words, My heart's desire, my heart's desire and deasis, 
It is the word that is used in the New Testament to describe the lowliest, the most intense type of praying. It is where Lazarus is begging or deasis at the door of the rich man just to get some crumbs so he can feed himself. It is the idea of just prostrating yourself and saying, Oh God, I beg you, I plead with you. He says, My prayer. My begging is, God, save my relatives. God, please work in their heart. Do something. Oh, God, this prayer that he's making, it's personal. It is one that he says, my prayer. Not the church's prayer. Not my family's prayer. This is my prayer. I am personally praying for souls to get saved. I am praying for my relatives, my co-workers, my fellow teens. I'm praying for my classmates. Can you say like Paul, you have been begging personally. You personally, in your personal prayer time, for some souls to get saved. It is persistent. I have been, I continue to beg on a regular basis. This isn't something I did just at camp. This isn't something that I did a couple of years ago. This is something that's part of my life. I am so burdened on a daily basis, on a regular basis, on a persistent basis. I am praying. I am praying for the lost to get saved. I am asking God. Isn't this a true statement? We need to talk to God about people before we talk to those people about God. You need to be doing this. I need to be doing this. We need to be going to God and saying, God, please give us the boldness. Please, God, give the laborers. God, please help the truth to be clear in their minds. Oh, God, please open up the opportunities. Help me to have the boldness to take the opportunities. Help them that when I share the truth with my coworkers, the blinders will fall off. Oh, God, please help them to come to a place of belief. God, give them conviction by your spirit. You need to be praying, begging God, pleading with God. There's a story that comes from church history that's in that, in that 300 age that there's a woman who gets married off. She's a beautiful young Christian woman, grew up in a believer's home. And yet her parents had an arranged marriage with, with somebody that she, they married her off and ended up that the man that she married was a Roman noble who was not a believer. And they had an okay marriage, but they were obviously divided spiritually. They had three sons. The sons all made professions of faith in Jesus Christ young. Two of them continued, but the third one, the last son, when he got to be a teenager, he decided that he wasn't going to follow the ways of Jesus Christ. He wanted nothing to do with them. He never did believe in his mind, and so he went off into living with his friends and doing the different lifestyle that would be involved with not living for Christ. He got himself into a crowd where he was doing more drinking. He got himself into a crowd where he did some gambling. He got himself into a crowd where he got involved with immorality. Eventually, he and this one young gal fell in love and they moved in together, never got married. And they lived together for a period of time. Mom, all this time, is praying. Praying, praying for her son. Praying that her son would, re would come to a point of repentance. That God would get a hold of his heart. She bled, bled, pled and begged for him for a matter of years. She went to her pastor one day and she says, Is it possible that my son would, would never get saved? And he said, Well, listen. And he knew the woman well. And he said, Monica, listen. It's not possible that the son of so many tears shed should perish. To give her help and encouragement, his point was, your son, you've prayed so long, God, God wants him saved, God's going to be dealing with him. And we know that there's free will involved, but we also understand that there was motivation because of prayer. The young man eventually came to a point where he heard the word. 
He thought God was challenging him and speaking to him personally when he came under such great conviction. He finally relented of his and repented of his sin and called upon Christ to be a savior. His name was Augustine. He is one noted as one of the smartest, most intelligent, most impacting of the church fathers whose mom prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed to get him to the point where he repented. Listen, you need to be praying. You should have been praying already for souls to get saved. If you have a burden, you should be begging. But then, you and I need to remember not to get so busy in this world. 1985, New Orleans is celebrating some, something they have never had before. It's not a hurricane. <laughs> something positive. New Orleans gets together all their lifeguards. They gather them together for a party at the end of the summer. Not one incident, one accident, not one drowning in all of New Orleans parishes there in that city. And they had a great year with all the lifeguards. They get all 120 together for a party, a celebration at the end of the summer. And they're having it at this one hotel. They've got this pool bottle. They're having a grand old time. And all 120 are celebrating for the whole evening. This is great, 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 until they were all done. When they were done and ready to leave, they had never realized that one of the lifeguards by the name of Jerome Meyer had fallen into the pool, hit his head, and drowned. In the middle of their party, one of their own. But they were so busy. The celebration was going on. There was plenty of time that they didn't see one of their own in trouble. California had an incident like this years ago where there was a police officer that came and saw this car parked illegally. The police officer came up and gave a ticket to that car parked illegally, wrote it out, stuck it underneath the uh, windshield wiper on the driver's side, took off. The next day, they came back. They saw it. They put another ticket there. The third day, somebody else came by. The third day, it was a different traffic meter person. The traffic meter noticed the two tickets, but looked inside the car. And there was a gunshot victim, slumped over the wheel that had been dead for those couple days. It is so easy to get so busy with little details, we forget the greater crime, the greater incident, the greater problem, the greater difficulty. It is so easy to get involved with somebody who, you know, they're, they're hedging on our, on our space at our house. They're, they're giving us some problems, you know, they're loud at the restaurant, or they're not carrying their end at work, and, you know, they, 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 are, they don't speak so kindly. We get so bothered by little things, we forget the greatest need that people have. They need Jesus Christ. You have the good news. You have, the, you have what is involved and what is the cure. So you begin with the burden. You then beg, and then third of all, you get busy winning the loss. You get busy doing something. You've prayed now. You said, God, please send somebody. When the disciples were praying, Lord, send forth laborers in chapter 9 of Matthew, chapter 10, they get sent forth. They're expected to be the first ones on the front line. Well, Paul does the same thing. Paul is sharing the word right here. He writes to them. He gives them the word of God. Paul says, I'm going to share the word via preaching with the Jews, with the Gentiles. Paul goes on in chapter 11. He says, here's my ministry. Look at chapter 11 where he says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my own office. And then he goes on and tells us why he is doing this. One, to reach the Gentiles. But he says, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them which are of my own flesh. 
the Jews, who think that they have the truth to themselves. I want them to be moved to see what's happening amongst the Gentiles, that the Gentiles have the spirit, that the Gentiles have the gifts. And as a result, they'll be moved by jealousy that they'll get born again as well, that they'll want that. So Paul spent the long nights, the sleepless moments. He labored hard at the tent making, trying to keep him going. He went on the shipwrecks. He put himself out to share the gospel. When's the last time you put yourself out to get the gospel out? When's the last time you gave up an evening to go and share the truth with a neighbor, with a relative, with a friend? When's the last time you sat down and you wrote an email, a gospel witness to your children, your grandchildren, your relatives with grace? When's the last time you went to some of those teammates, those classmates, and you took of your time to share about Jesus Christ? Paul did, and you ought to. There's a statue that's both one that's like it in Europe, one that is over on the West Coast here in the United States. Both of them have a similarity. The one in Europe because of bombings, the one here in the United States because of vandals. A statue of Christ whose hands are broken off. Oh, they wanted to get this statue replaced, they wanted to get it repaired, but the preacher of the church said, no, I want to use it as a lesson. And I want our church to understand something very profound when it comes to ministering here in this life. So instead of tearing the statue down or repairing it at all, he put the sign at the base of it. I have no hands but yours. Jesus Christ would this day be saying to you, I don't have any other mouthpiece but you. I will work in the spiritual realm. I will send the conviction, but you've got to be sharing. You've got to be doing something. You have got to be burdened for your friends, your relatives, your co-workers. You've got to look around and see that they need the Lord. You've got to look to see, hey, who is it? Who is it that I work with that, that God, you can burden my heart and God, I will pray with them. I'll get somebody else at church. We'll perform a prayer group and we'll pray for these next couple weeks. We'll, we'll try to, to keep them before you, God, and, and burden. And God, you, we're praying for a witness. We're praying for their responding so that they come and, and listen even to the message that Joe Mark will preach. God, we're going to do something. And then we're going to look for opportunities to invite. We're going to look for opportunities to give a tract. We're going to look for opportunities tonight. When the laboring has been done, you come tonight, look for opportunities to just talk and share. Because you're burdened for the lost. You want to see them respond to the gospel. You want to see them ministered in the days ahead. And you say, hey, listen, I've got, I've got plenty of plans. And, you know, I've got Sunday evening. I've I got a program I've got to see. I've got to do this. But wait a minute. We want to see the lost impacted for the gospel. So we're going to pray somewhat this afternoon. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to try to be a witness to that. I want to do that with the meetings coming up. I want to do that with, with some of the other ministries. Some of you are headed for a teen, another teen trip. You don't wait until Friday, Thursday or Friday. You'd be praying now. You'd be laboring now in prayer and begging God that he would use you to be a gospel witness. Lord, please, work in our hearts. Why? Because we're supposed to be witnessing. I've shared with you the shame, most shameful moment in my entire life. Yeah, one of them is real close when I was swimming with the, wrong, with the wrong person down in Florida. Okay, some of you know that story. But I'm talking about something much worse. I'm talking about when I was in college preparing for the preaching, for preaching the gospel. And I knew God wanted me to witness. He wanted me to witness to my boss. I just knew it. I knew he wanted me to share the word of God. And I was already going from my one year of college into the other. And I had shared the gospel with several of my coworkers, but I was afraid of my boss. It wasn't his name, though it was a strange name, Dick Lindekugel. Okay, He was the owner of this company, but I was afraid of him. I was afraid that he was a big guy. I was afraid that if I talked with him, that he would probably fire me 
because he knows that I'm in Bible college, he knows I'm going to be a preacher, and yet he hired me back year after year. And yet I was afraid of him. So I prayed, God, please help me to be a witness to Dick Lindagogi. He really looks miserable. The last week or so, he looked really terrible. It was the last week of school. And I prayed, God, please help me to be a witness before I leave for the summer and become a preacher boy at a church down in Indianapolis for three months. Help me to be able to witness to him. Well, that day before we left for school, uh, left for the summer, um, I went into work and I had a note from the manager. It said that you're going to have to go with Mr. Lindekugel to another town next by. You're going to deliver some Cadillacs with him. He was a Cadillac dealership and they would swap cars every so often. And there was two cars that needed to be taken and two cars brought back. And so I was the one that they chose to help drive with him for, I'm sorry, one car to be delivered and two to come back. So he said I was chosen to go with him, to ride down about 45 minutes away, pick up the cars and I'd bring one back, he'd bring one back. So we get in the car and I've been praying already. God knows I've been praying. Help me to speak to Mr. Lindekugel. So I'm in the car, I'm sitting there and I'm praying, God, if you really want me to speak to Dick Lindekugel, help him to bring up the subject. We're driving out of town and Dick, as we're going in, in Minnesota, it's this way where there's a little town here, a little town here, a little town here. They're not like Anvil, Cleona, Palmyra. They're spread together. They're separated. And there's usually miles between. And in every little hamlet, there's a church with a tower and a steeple. And so we're driving and as we're going down Highway 35, he makes this comment. He says, hey Wayne, he says, you're studying for ministry. What do you think that church teaches? The door was as wide open as could be. I don't know, Mr. Linda Kugel. Lord, if you really want me to speak to him, you know, make him start the conversation. We go down a little bit more, and he says, Hey, what do you think about that church over there? What kind of church is that? I don't know, Mr. Linda Kugel. Lord, if you really want me to speak to him, make him bring up the point. I did that three or four times. We get to the place. He they gives me the keys. He says, You head back. I'll be heading back shortly after you. I'm not lying. With God as my witness, I get in the car and I'm crying. God, how could I be such a coward? How could I not share the word? I prayed. God, something's wrong with me. Am I really saved? You know, I was just so desperate in my heart. So we, I drive back and I determine in my mind. I determine when I get back, I'm staying. I am staying until I can see Mr. Linda Kugel. And so I went back, hung around for a while, and hung around later, and finally went in, talked to the manager of the company, and said, hey, Tom, uh, is Mr. Linda Kugel back yet? And he says, no, he called. He said he's not coming in. He's going straight home. <laughs> the next morning, I went back to my workplace before I left for, for the summer, and I thought, I'm going to see him again. He wasn't in. They said they left a message. He's not coming in you know, for a couple days. So I go off, become a preacher boy in Indianapolis for a summer, right north of the city. Have all kinds of things, in charge of a youth group, do all kinds of stuff. Blow out a swimming pool, all kinds of fun stuff during that summer. Get back, and the first day back in 